this is amazing. This is math in the real world. There's no way you're going to have a whole day where everything goes according to the plan that you set out in front of you. You're a good leader because you, you're <laughs> good at hiring lots smarter people than yourself. Yeah, That's right. a hallmark. Welcome, everybody. This is episode number 64 of the Tuesday Morning Round podcast. A few of the topics that we talk about a lot um, are things like breaking into cybersecurity, how to scale a cybersecurity organization. We talk about trends when it comes to security, um, leading security organizations. And it just so happens that our guest today, Dinah Davis, is an expert on all of those topics in many ways. Dinah is a cybersecurity executive. She's a speaker, podcaster. She's the VP of R&D Ops at Arctic Wolf, and she's seen that organization grow very rapidly. So I have some cool stories, I'm sure, there. Uh, welcome, Dinah. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited. Yeah, we have fun hour-ish. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's uh, there's nothing big in the cyber world going on right now. So there's No, you know, nothing. Not, not, mm. <laughs> cool. Uh, maybe where we can start <laughs> off is you, you've had an awesome career. Organization after organization, a lot of success, seeing uh, Arctic Wolf scale out. So can you maybe just talk about it? Like, how did you get into cybersecurity? Um, what's your journey been like? Yeah, so um, my story is a lot like a lot of other women's stories, which is that we come into um, security in kind of almost a backward or haphazard or accidental um, way. So for me, I was, you know, 17 in, in high school and I was really good at math. And I went to my career council. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, and he was like, oh, you're good at math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be a math teacher. Because, you know, that's what girls <laughs> who are good at math do. Um, meanwhile, all the boys came out being like, oh, you should go into engineering and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, it was fairly naive. And so I was like, OK, well, I'm, I'm going to go be a math teacher. So <clears throat> I went to the University of Lethbridge, which has this phenomenal... <clears throat> has this phenomenal five-year program where you get a you get two degrees you get a teaching degree and you get your bachelor's of whatever you're doing right and in in the first two years you take a few of these pre-courses to being a teacher where you actually go and spend some time in a classroom and i very quickly realized that my love was for the mathematics and while children are lovely I did not actually want to spend my day with them. <laughs> my my wife uh, was a teacher as well. She taught art, so uh, I can empathize. <laughs> yeah, and so I was like, okay, this isn't this isn't going to fly, right? Because I I just want to do more math. And on top of that, I'd waited till my third year of university to take the mandatory computer science course because all my friends who were in humanities and social studies and everything they were like, it's so hard. So I was like. I had this kind of like fear of it that it was just going to be so hard. And I, I got in there and I just remember like even just the first class, like I can still feel sitting in that big auditorium and looking at it going, oh my God, this is just another syntax for how I think. This is amazing. This is math in the real world. And like my love for computer science was solidified like in that 30 minute class um, and, awesome. and took off kind of from there. Um, and of course, it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. 
and trying to get a job in like everything was kind of hot, right? For a little bit and then it wasn't. <laughs> so yep. Got the dot com really, boom. For yeah. the 20 year olds listening, there was a, a this thing <laughs> called the dot com boom back then. <laughs> yeah. And 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 after it was a lot like 2008. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You couldn't find jobs. But uh, I noticed this posting at the Canadian government saying, uh, we need somebody who's good at math who can code. And I was like, hey, me, that's me, that's me. And so I, I, I applied and you had to do the whole secret service thing. Like I, I basically went to work for the Canadian version of NSA um, yeah. as a co-op student. And what I did was I evaluated, they were trying to evaluate Bluetooth as an algorithm because they were going through this cycle of reevaluating what the AES um, algorithm should be. And they it had been triple does, right? And it ended up moving forward with, with Blowfish. But, but Bluetooth was actually a protocol that was considered and they needed somebody to take Bluetooth from the spec and, and, and implement it in C++. And that's what I did. And this was my discovery of, of cybersecurity and cryptography. And I ended up spending three co-op terms there. And that was where my love of cybersecurity came because it was like, okay, I'm taking math, I'm taking computer science, and now there's this like amazing real world application of all of this where I can actually make a difference and do something with it, right? And that's, that's like how I got introduced to, to cybersecurity. That's awesome. I see it's funny because I didn't even have a computer in my house in high school. Like a lot of the guys I talk to now are, uh, you know, they're, you know, I had a server rack and I was uh, doing yeah. this or that. I, we lived out in the country. Like I had acreage and six dogs and we had <laughs> no computer in the house. And then um, I had my first internship, kind of like you, it reminded me of, we, I did an IT internship. And then I kind of realized, oh, this is, this is cool stuff. I like the idea of networking. I like, uh, the way technology is solving problems. And as I was coming through school, cybersecurity was kind of becoming a thing. So I got a job in business consulting, quote unquote, what is consulting? You know, no, <laughs> no out of college student knows what consulting is. And then it kind of, I got put on some big project that was cybersecurity consulting, kind of figured it out. And I was like, hey, this is like my internships with other stuff attached to it. And then I got into security. I love the routes that different people take. Because yeah. <laughs> like your math background, which makes a lot of sense. I was a business yep. thing out in cyber. It's really funny. So I, um, I think something that's like really important, especially in diversity for for cybersecurity, right? Like it's so important. Diversity is just important full stop, right? We know we know companies that are more diverse make more money. We we know that, right? Um, <clears throat> but I think especially in security, there's this this perception that unless you grew up on a computer hacking in your basement in your hoodie, that you're not going to be good enough, that you're not going to fit in and you're not going to be able to do that job. Well, I didn't do any of that. And I've had a 20 plus year career in cybersecurity. It's not, and you know, you didn't either, right? It's not necessary. It's something you can go to school to learn. You can learn online. Um, you do that is just one type of security person, but it is not the only or the required type, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think another kind of when most people think of cybersecurity, at least what I'm seeing, especially from students, is they're thinking security operations center, pen tester, maybe engineer. Um, 
but there's a whole universe of cybersecurity stuff. There's governance, there's leadership, there's yep. compliance, there's a, a huge people interface piece of it. I know yep. some great security practitioners that do nothing technical at all. They're just great communicators. There's R&D, there, there's lots of, so bottom line is in the world of cybersecurity, and I would say IT generally, there's room for different types of people, different personalities. And it's the kind of, and you need those, not just is there room for them, but there's, it's mandatory that you have them yeah. because like an engineering minded person is not going to be someone who's energized necessarily by communication, let's say in some situations. So I think you're, you're absolutely right. How did you, um, so you went from math, were there other, uh, like women or, or any, any kind of inspiration as you, uh, forged your path early on in cybersecurity, or did you feel like you were going it along a long time? Oh man, I was going it alone. <laughs> that's that's really how it felt. So it, did it's that stick interesting. out to you though? Did, were you conscious of that? Was it like something you're like, man, there's no other women around here, or or was it upon reflection you realized that? Uh no, it was pretty obvious. So, yeah. um, when I was in my last year of undergrad, um, university, I, because the university I went to was so specialized in education it actually had a female to male ratio of seven to one. So for every, for every seven women, there was one guy in the university, right? And I went into my first like high level computer science course, like not the intro courses, like a, a second or a third year course. And I walked in and there was 60 people in the room and the two of us were women at a school where it's seven to one women to men. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I I'm going to make a friend by the end of this class because I'm not doing this whole thing by myself, not talking to anyone. I'm, I'm, I've always been a very collaborative person. I liked working on assignments with people. Um, I like, I like the social aspect of school as well as, you know, what I was learning. And, um, you know, it shows in my job too, right? I picked people leadership overall, right? I, I like working with people. Um, and I, so I remember at the very end of class turning around, there's this like row of like, well, they were all guys, but this row of like four or five guys. And I said, Hey, uh, are you guys going to work on this assignment later? And I, I swear they were more afraid of me at that moment than, than I was of them. They were like, Oh my God, the only girls talking to us, what are we going to do? But you know what? I'm actually still friends with some of those guys today, which is amazing. That's like over 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, so that's when I noticed it first. And then I started representing like the women in math groups. And um, when I got to BlackBerry, so so I went after my undergrad, I went and did a master's degree in cryptography at the University of Waterloo and was super fortunate to get my dream job right out of school, which was to work as a security software developer for BlackBerry before there was a million BlackBerry users. Um, we worked on a team called Crypto Dev. There was five of us and we built BlackBerry security. And so it was, it was, it was an amazing job, right? And I remember thinking to myself, I was the only woman for sure. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself and just acting in a way where I, I was convincing them all I was just one of the guys. I did not want to perceived to be a feminist. I did not want to be perceived as different. Um, I just wanted to be one of the guys. And I, cause I was afraid that if I said anything about any of those, any of that, that it would be detrimental to me. 
Um, mm-hmm. Now, I was so fortunate because the team that I landed on was phenomenal. And the the leadership on that team was phenomenal. I wouldn't have had to worry about that. Like, as I learned later, you know, later. But when you're, you know, you're in your early 20s and you're scared, yeah. right? Like, you you don't have the clout of your career behind you. It was it was like 2004. It was hard to find a job. The boom, just like because of the crash, right? It was hard to find a job. So you you were trying to hold on to it, right? You didn't want to make any waves. But yeah, so I'm, I definitely I definitely remember that strongly, but I, I didn't do a lot about it Yes, yeah, I, I had a, a conversation with uh, like Chris Roberts and four, four other dudes there all in like the hacker community. That's how they brand themselves. That's their words, not mine. And, and these are really successful people in terms of their career, their technical acumen, their, their leadership ability. And we talked about um, personal brand and each of them independently mentioned like the fear, the imposter syndrome that they had. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm hearing you and you, I mean, you rewind back to when you're 20, in your 20s, you don't have the wins under your belt. You don't have the career, no. the clout, all of that. And and one of the themes that comes up from highly successful people is this is courage, because right? you had to overcome a lot. You're one of the only females, no mm-hmm. track record of success. And even if you weren't female, you had the guts to turn around and engage someone and and, and form friendships. Where where do you think that comes from? Like just your willingness to put yourself out there and take risks. Oh man, I think it's my family. I think it's just how I think there's part of it who where it's innately who i am that i like i like attention i like meeting people i like doing things and so i seek it right and and to and and to do that you have to be brave you have to be Mm -hmm. right but i i also think it's you know that the the values that you know my parents my grandfather insult instilled in me is that um you always do the right things. And if the right thing means you have to get out in front and be loud about something or, you know, you have to put yourself out there, then you should do it. Right. That you should mm-hmm. just go and do it. But but it's interesting because um, I think it's just, it is part of who I am. Like like if we're going to be at like an amusement park, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, let's go do the big ride. Yeah. And then my husband's going to be like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll meet you at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's just like our natures, right? Um, so yeah, but I do agree with you there that um there's a lot of bravery that is that is needed um every day in your career, every day. And I think so much more bravery was needed 20 years ago when I was starting for women than than needs today. And that you know, that is something that I'm really starting to be happy to see, right? Because one of the reasons um, I created, like, so I created a, a, a blog, a, a basically a publication called, called Like a Girl. And the whole purpose of it was to change perceptions of women in technology, right? And, and, and be a place for other women to be supported and for a place for allies to come and find out what they can do and a place for teachers and parents to come to how they can get their their younger children, their girls involved in STEM, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a big push for me. I wanted to make it easier for the next generation to do what I did, 
I wanted it not to be so hard or to feel quite so uncomfortable. Um, that, you know, and, and for me, it just like, it was a thing, it was there, but it just wasn't a big enough barrier for me not to do it. Right. But mm-hmm. for some women, it was a big enough barrier. Right. It absolutely was. Um, so yeah, I think you, I mean, any person who's successful to some degree has to be brave, right? You're, you're always doing something where you're putting yourself out there and your ideas out there um, to be judged because yep. that's how you get ahead, right? That's how you make a difference is like putting your own ideas out there and, and solving problems that other people won't solve, right? And so there has to be some kind of bravery that comes along with that, right? How do you think it's shaping up? Because, for example, I know at Risk 360, when, when we put open job recs out, there's certainly a fair representation of females, but it's still probably mostly males that apply. If I just kind of anecdotally look at the industry, it still seems predominantly male, but but maybe changing rapidly where females are entering the space. Are you seeing the same? Are, are you seeing it become more of a shared space than predominantly one gender or another uh how, how's it how's the trending for you yeah so i i think first off there's two levels of this there's one mm-hmm. in the tech industry in general and then there's security okay and i so i think security trails what the tech industry is doing in general and up until about seven or eight years ago i would say not a lot had changed Um, but one of the big things I saw, um, when I was starting code, like a girl around 2016, this was also the time when the me too movement really started to hit. And all of a sudden there was like, in like the Ellen page, uh, Ellen page, that's not right. The Ellen, um, pow, there we go. So then we, you get the, the, the Ellen pow lawsuit, um, and you get the lady from from Uber who posted her story. And all of a sudden now it doesn't become these individual stories. It becomes larger and people start believing yeah. you that that this stuff is a problem, that there is yeah. problems. Right. Yeah. It came to the public's consciousness. It went from like a su- subconscious issue. Maybe yeah. we all think about you even mentioned like you didn't re- re- think about it consciously when you were 20. But no, now, I didn't. Now the public is more conscious of it generally. You yes. think that's helped that public yes. consciousness, those news stories? Yeah. A hundred percent. And and the other part that we were seeing is local universities make starting to make about 10 years ago, um, locally for us, the University of Waterloo. And and if if people don't have a concept of this, like the University of Waterloo in computer science is like going in Canada is like going to MIT. Like it is the computer science university mm-hmm. of Canada, right? And a lot of the big names recruit our developers and our students and stuff um, from here as well. And about 10 years ago, the universities started to make a concerted effort on outreach and um, recruiting, recruiting more diverse candidates, more women. And they they were able to move their enrollment rates from like, 25% female to, you know, I can't remember how high, 40, 50%, like really making a difference, right? And because they were specifically going and doing these these outreach engagements in high schools and and stuff like that. So what what we are starting to see 
now is the results of actually that work, right? So we're starting to see um, math cohorts or computer science cohorts that are coming through and graduating at 30% instead of graduating at 10% of the class, right? Yeah. Um, when I when I went through university um, in general, like math might have been 50-50 women to men, but computer science was like less than 10% female, right? And unfortunately, cybersecurity is about like probably like almost 10 years behind. So I would say, you know, in the last few years, we're making some progress, but we're not much better than 10%. Like, I think in 2017, they did a, a survey and um, it was about 10% of the field was female. And now we're maybe at yeah. like 17 like, yeah. it's not it's not moving very quickly. And it, and and that and that line's not. Yeah, it's just not moving very quickly. But what I am seeing is the younger generation. Are the women that are coming in. Right. So this is never going to be fixed in in my generation because people are set in, too set in their careers. Like you can't just like you can't just like magic experienced women yeah. in cybersecurity where they don't exist, right? Like it's, that doesn't work. Uh, but the positive side is that we are seeing much, many, many, many more come in. And if people have set up their programs properly, their, their actual onboarding programs, they can get a lot more. So um, I work with this amazing lady, uh, Lisa Tetrout, and she runs our, our uh, ISOC our like our internal sock at Arctic Wolf. And she has specifically targeted diverse candidates um, since she started three or four years ago. And what we've done is we've put in a very strong training and certification process. So we've had people come in. Um, I think one of my favorite stories is um, uh, this guy that was my barista. Um, and I was, uh, I spent like a whole year of Tuesdays planning a cybersecurity conference with my friend, like my friends. And we, we, we did this great cybersecurity conference in, in KW and he was our barista and he would just listen to us talk. And it was just so interesting. And he wanted to help us with the conference. So we were like, yeah, for sure. You can totally help. Um, and afterwards he's like, how can I get more into cybersecurity? I'm like, well, you got to start listening to some podcasts and, you know, see if there's a, a, a program. And then basically he used um, the the pandemic, got into a eight month cybersecurity program. And I kid you not, he's a security analyst at Arctic. That's World. awesome. We uh, and, my, yeah. I have a similar story where we hired not me, but uh, someone who was on my team uh, at a different company hired their Uber driver. Because he heard, overheard them talking about it. They're really excited about cybersecurity. And he was uh, thinking about getting into IT, heard them talking about cyber. And then like fast forward a year and he had done a similar program and they yeah. hired him. They're like, oh, this is the Uber driver. So it's, it's pretty cool. Those stories are great. I love them. Yeah. And it's not that like we're hiring people off the street. Like people are going and doing like a one year course or they're taking some SANS yeah. courses or whatever. But But you can, this is a career you can transition into. You, it can be a late career change, right? We had some people from being bakers, chemists, um, like all kinds of stuff. And that's why I think cybersecurity is so interesting because you can come in from so many different backgrounds and because there's such a diversity of roles as well. Like you don't have to yeah. come in as a as an analyst, right? Like maybe you're into privacy 
or or something else, right? But um, I think there's just so many skill sets that are used in other careers that are so valuable in cybersecurity. Um, it, and it and it doesn't need a four year degree. It doesn't. It needs you know you need to get into the introductory levels. It needs probably a year of studying, some form or another. You're doing it yourself or schooling or whatever. But it's not it's not like a four year thing. I see a lot of people, and maybe this is like a a LinkedIn echo chamber, but I, I do see a lot of folks saying, "Hey, cybersecurity seems to be hard to get into," and that hasn't been my experience necessarily. But I probably have some bias on that. But if you're advising someone who's trying to break into the industry, you know, absent going to get a college degree or something like that, do you see like little tips or ways that people are doing it successfully? Yeah. So the 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 boot camp style um, cybersecurity courses, reputable ones, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, SANS courses. The other way to do it is to start joining a bunch of like if you're going to do the IR type route to start joining CTFs and go to conferences. Um, I also think just regularly listening to security podcasts, you wouldn't believe how much that helps. Like um, just building up your cybersecurity knowledge, because the thing with cybersecurity is it's never a one and done career choice. It's constantly changing. So if you want to come into this career, you have to be okay with constantly learning. Because the landscape's constantly changing. And I think that actually draws a lot of people into it, right? Like it's never, it's never boring. I can tell you that. For it's sure. never boring. <laughs> but but yeah, it's about actually going out there and and getting some experience, whether or not that experience is paid or through competitions or through schooling or things like that. Yep, I agree. Now one of the things I noticed about you as I was stalking your LinkedIn profile was, um, A, you, you've you've picked winners, which I'm always impressed with people. Like you got into BlackBerry pretty early, which that mm -hmm. became a security powerhouse back in the day. You got, I think I looked at Arctic Wolf and I think I saw that your R&D team was like something like 10 to 100 people you grew it to. And then the firm in general was like 35 to 1500. So th those are like huge scaling security organizations yeah. very few do that so yeah. what was it like when you think about arctic wolf like what has that journey been like from like very small team to really international organization i it's been crazy and amazing um the way i like to describe it is you know like you've got people and they're athletes and they're trying to make it into the olympics right well, not only are we an athlete trying to make it into the Olympics, we're trying to be like Michael Phelps. That yeah. is the level at which we are working and and trying to achieve, you know, our goals of of making our clients' environments and their lives more secure, helping the IT people sleep at night, right? Um, me specifically. So I I was coming out of a job um I'd been in for a little while as a as a senior manager, and I was actually specifically on the lookout for a startup that was just coming out of what I call chaos, the startup chaos. So just coming out of where you had 10 or 15 people and everybody does absolutely everything and there's no structure and uh, because there shouldn't be when you're that small, right? Like you just you just everybody's doing what needs to be done. Um, and I was specifically looking for a company like that 
that I could then help take and scale. Um, because one of my skill sets is um, building, I love building teams. I love building development teams. Um, I like helping them figure out how they can be the most um, effective. I like putting in just the right amount of process to help things move slowly, like, sorry, to help things move quickly without putting in so much that the developers want to hit you on the head. Because if anyone knows anything about developers is that they don't like process, they don't want any of it. And it's like hurting cats. So, you know, you just got to put the right guardrail in here and the right guardrail in there so that, you know, the stream flows really well through and they get lots done and you pull out any blockers, but not so much that it becomes a trudge like and it's all bureaucratic, right? Like you're never going to scale yeah. quickly if you do if you do that. So I, I was actually um, looking for that specifically. Um, and I, I talked to I ended up talking to three companies um and and had the choice between arctic wolf and and another company and um what i'd liked about arctic wolf at the time which so the one the other company was run by two or three 20 year old guys arctic wolf was run by two people in their 50s um one lovely lady uh kim tremblay and brian naismith and they both had successful careers so Brian Naismith had already taken Blue Coat Public um, and transformed that company. So I was like, I can go there and I can learn from them, or I can go to this other company where I'm going to have to teach them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to teach them about the R&D stuff. I can't teach them anything about, about the running the company stuff. That's not me. Um, so I, 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 um, I made the bet with Arctic Wolf, even though the other company locally had more cachet, had like much more like they were the cool kids on the street um, and uh, no one had heard of Arctic Wolf. Nobody. I would be they were like, where are you going? I'm like, Arctic Wolf. What? What is that? Oh, and then. Yeah. So. Um, so that's what I did. And, and then, you know, we really that was, you know, from from the early times, like. Um, the goal for the company was to be big, to be yeah. very big, to be a leader in security operations. And like, we have been striving and going to achieve that ever since. What, what does like on the ground? And then this is, these are selfish questions because we're kind of going through some of these growth things at Risk 360, but like, you know, when you're, uh, you're, you're out of that chaos stage, you're in the growth stage. But you still kind of sit by the CEO. You still, most of your team will yeah, still fit yeah, yeah. in the room. Yeah. And then you turn around the next day and it's like, well, hold on a second. I, the people I used to see every day, I don't see anymore. And yeah. there's multiple layers of communication and we have to do that. So as, as you built your team out, I, I call it the management operating system. But like, what does it look like for you? Are you doing one-on-ones with key team members? Do you have like a weekly stand-up or quarterly strategy session? What's kind of your operational cadence? So I think the most important thing when when you're going to scale big is to make sure you have a solid culture before you do that. Mm -hmm. And the the things that our culture in in R&D at Arctic Wolf are based on was always openness and transparency. Um, there's a concept of no walls, which, um, you know, people have said that before, but what does that really mean? And 
And we actually took it to the extreme. So for a long time, everybody's title was member of technical staff. You didn't get special titles. Um, your responsibility level was based on what you could handle and what you could get done. And if the most important thing was sweeping a floor one day, maybe you did that, right? Um, but not only that, it meant no manual testers. We have no manual testers. Um, when you give a developer a tester, they develop just enough to go, yeah, yeah, look, looks good. Somebody else will fix that. Because developers are inherently lazy. And I, I can say that because I was one. We want the fastest route. It makes us good developers, right? Like if we have to do yeah. something repetitively, we're not going to. We're going to automate the crap out of it because we don't want to do that, right? And so when you offload the testing to, to, to a tester, you're basically doing that. They're abdicating responsibility of the quality of the product, right? When you take the tester away from the developer, they've lost their safety net and they are responsible for the whole thing end to end, which is a good thing and a scary thing, right? But a lot of them really embrace that, right? And so the first time they have to wake up at 2 a.m. because their code broke something, that won't happen again. Um, and we built everything on automation testing. Mm -hmm. automation 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 and so it's things like like that that concept and the automation testing that you put in it early that helps you expand quickly right um and then we had a couple other other kind of mantras that we we've lived by this whole time uh one which is my favorite because i added it when i joined the company with it which is bad news fast right so um it's software it's cybersecurity. Something's not going to go according to plan. There's no way that there's no way you're going to have a whole day where everything goes according to the plan that you 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 set out in front of you. Um, yeah. And so that stuff's going to go sideways. And as long as you you act as one team and you escalate right away when something's gone wrong, then the whole team can work together to solve it. What I think happens at a lot of companies and places I have been is you get that cowboy or that cowgirl, the rock star, whatever. And they're like, something goes wrong and they don't tell anyone because they're scared because they're scared they're going to get yelled at. And two, they're like, well, I can fix it. I'll just fix it myself and I'll be the hero. Right. And that doesn't that doesn't work. That doesn't work. It, it will inevitably fall over. So because of that, as we've been growing, we've kept that culture of openness and transparency, of collaboration, of of, you know, us all pitching in and that that has helped us grow quickly um because we have those strong things in place now it's not just that obviously there has to be a little bit more so um you know i think when i joined i put in um a strong uh software delivery cycle process um using jira which just happens to be the tool we chose um but and 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 for the first couple of years, it was enough to just track all the work there and and track projects in something like, you know, a wiki like conference, right? Now that's like that doesn't work at all, right? So so now we've scaled up much larger where all the projects have to be in Jira and everything is traceable and trackable. So like there's different things you need at different stages. And I would say that the move from about 50 people to 100 is where you need to start really managing projects. And how are you going to work with product management? And how are you going to um, build out the systems and the processes so that it's clear what happens at the beginning, middle and end of a project, right? And they don't have to be really rigid. 
but they have to be there, right? And so the organizations where, where that's not there, it's chaos. And it's very hard to scale up. Where when you put that kind of thing in, it's much easier to scale. It's not, nothing is very easy, but it's easier. Easier. <laughs> One of the things, especially during the pandemic is like, um, we, we have, we've always had a, a pretty um, strong culture of autonomy and personal freedom just because we knew everybody was going to take care of their business. Mm-hmm. But then as you get bigger, it's not that people are lazy. It's sometimes they just don't know what to do or they don't know what right looks like. So you have to balance autonomy with accountability. Yep. And um, especially in the engineering world, at least for us, uh, because maybe they need to know what to work on, how to prioritize it, which projects are most important. How, how do you do that? How do you, in a, in a world, in an environment where people like a lot of autonomy, how do, what are some of the things you do to encourage accountability? Yeah, that's actually that's a really good question. I I honestly think it still does come down to culture plus process, right? Yeah. So, um, when you have the right processes in place, for example, um, if 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 a team is working in sprints and they commit to finishing the sprint, then you can help them be accountable by checking in at at at, at stand up like. Have you finished the tickets for this sprint? What's going on? Why aren't, why isn't that happening? Right. Um, or at a, a slightly higher level, when you build, like, say, a project object of some kind, you can be like, where's the requirements document? So where's the, and these things sound like they're bureaucratic, but in a, but they're not because you got to do just enough, not too much, but just enough so that it's like, well, okay. Before this gets released, it needs release notes, it needs documentation written, and it needs a code review or um, an architecture review. Um, what, have those things been done? And then you can hold them accountable to it because you've tracked it, right? So the tracking of things be- starts to become very important um, because that way, you know, people are going to naturally do the easiest thing. Right. And if you make the process too hard, they will bypass it entirely. So that won't work either. Right. But if you put in just enough and then you have the person who follows up and looks at things and like a release manager for monthly releases. Um, and, and when I say that, I don't mean monthly code releases. We we deploy multiple times a day. Um, that would be like feature flagging on a release. Right. Because for customers, that's important to get things on a monthly cadence for developers. The faster your frequency, the faster you're able to deploy, um, the more stable your code is, the less risk you have. Like all of those things are are are, are much better. Right. There's actually um, so my philosophies around this are you have to have a collaborative culture. You have to have a happy development team. And you have to have as much continuous delivery and continuous integration as possible. Those three things, if you're always trying to improve one of those three things, you will have a high-performing software development team. Um, There's a great book called Accelerate that goes through and gives data on why that's true. Um, And when I say happy development team, I do not mean ping pong tables and beer. I mean... They have a development environment that's easy for them to use. They um, trust their development managers. They like the people they work with. They like the 
the the the technology they like the challenges of the team um it is those things so the more so the interesting part is the more continuous integration and continuous deployment you have and the better your build systems and environment are around that the happier your development team is right yeah, the, the more toil. collaborative your culture stuff, yeah. is the happier team is right and so those you can actually like in that book, it actually gives metrics on which you can measure those things, which um, we've been doing for two and a half years. Um, so you can measure where you're at and what's happening, right? And and know where to make these tweaks because number of tickets produced or number of projects built, that doesn't tell you how good your organization is, right? But some of the CICD metrics do. So, you know, how often do you deploy? How long does it take to go from code to deploy? Uh, how long does it take you to recover? So if there's an issue and an outage or something, if you're running a service, what's your time to recovery? And are you continuing to drive that down? Right. And what's, you know, like something like escape defect rate. So th those are things you can actually track. But you don't fix them by fixating on those things. You 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 use the, that information to find where in your system, where in your organization you can add, um, you can optimize, you can you can remove blockers, you can do various things like that. Yep. So a lot of one of the things that has happened to me, at least, is as you move through your career. You know, you, you often move to the next level because you were great at the prior level. So maybe you were a great engineer, so you get promoted to engineer manager. Then you get promoted to director. But what I've witnessed for myself recently is uh, a new challenge for me is not just leading, but it is leading through others. So like I have at mm. least two la layers of managers before it hits the staff. So I'm like training the trainer. And I yep. imagine for you at a, a hundred person sub organization, you know, you have right, engineering managers and directors that you're trying to coach up so they can coach their team. How, how, how do you do that effectively? Oh, no. Are we back? Oh, might have broke. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to restart. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the question was, um, as you're leading through others, uh, for example, yourself, you're at the top of the org, you have engineering managers who have to manage people. What are your techniques or cadences or any suggestions you have to lead through others? Yeah. So, um, for a long time I was leading all of R and D and now like I, I, um, my role changed about a year ago where we actually decided to focus on having somebody who was taking care of the what and the how. So my job now is actually the what and the how, and none of them report, like very few of them report to me, but I still am managing how they work. So it, it's even yeah. a little bit to the next degree. But whenever I've had people, if people leaders report to me, um, you know, it, it always come like leading at any level to me always comes back to servant leadership. What can I do to help make their lives better? to like, what can I do to facilitate that? How can I be an umbrella for some of the stuff that comes from the top? How can I um, help them grow so that they can handle some of these things? And so uh, any of my direct reports, I always have uh, weekly one-on-ones. There's, there's no way you can live without that. Um, and some of the many more 
than once a week than others, depending on the role and where they're at in their career and what's what's all going on. Right. Um, and it, it's it's constant coaching and listening to you know, big part is listening to what's going on and really listening to what the problems are and then asking them more questions, telling them what to do doesn't really work like when you're told to do something you're like fine whereas if you're you know i've got a problem and then your boss asks you a few more questions gets you to dig in a little deeper and then they say well what will you do in that situation and then and then all of a sudden you've come up with it but they've helped you get there like you you're gonna understand it better they're gonna understand it better right i mean and there's definitely times where you're like okay well this is what i would do Right. Because they, they just you don't have time or they're not there yet. Um, but but it is about developing other people. It's about like to me, being a leader is servitude to other people and servitude to the company. It's it's not about me at all. It's about it's about how how I can enable things to happen better inside the company. Right. And the more you do that successfully, the more that gets noticed, by the way. Yeah. That's the right? irony, right? Like yeah. you're not the hero as the leader. No, you're not though. You're not though. And like you also have to realize like there's a lot of people in the room totally smarter than you. And that's why you hired them. And you should let them do their jobs. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. that's how you know you're a good leader because you you're good at hiring <laughs> lots smarter people than yourself. Yeah, that's right, a hallmark. Exactly. So um on you guys are in a very interesting business in terms of probably seeing trends when it comes to cybersecurity. And uh, if you're listening to this, we're like a week into the Russia-Ukraine, I guess, war, if you want to call it, the invasion over there. And amongst that, there's been a a huge uptick in press and media about cybersecurity incidents. I mean, you can look at the last 12 months, everybody's already talking about ransomware. Um, My mom, who's not in this field at all was asking me about you know media stuff and she was actually genuinely curious she was like what role, what do you guys do around that is that what you do every day <laughs> yeah. so you just like when you're hearing stuff like that you know that it's reached the public consciousness yeah so therefore it's, it's a big thing i also saw a study recently that said cybersecurity was like uh something like six trillion in the next few years total cost which is going to out outpace the drug trafficking uh the criminal drug trade i don't i don't know if that's a true statistic but it's probably directionally <laughs> accurate it's um, not a surprising but, statistic but yeah is it true i don't yeah. know either <laughs> but uh exactly so bottom line is this is big and arguably growing do you see what what are you seeing are you seeing this because is this a problem here to stay is it getting better is it just evolving where's your head at on like where cybersecurity is going Yeah. So I think it's, I think the last, you know, 10 years have been extremely interesting. I I would actually say it'd be more even like the last 15, right? Um, So security has always been a problem. Cybersecurity has always been a problem. As soon as as there was internet, there was cybersecurity problems, right? And I mean, a great book to read to to learn about that is uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Just, okay, if you haven't, if you're in cybersecurity and you haven't read that book, like it's a joy. You should do it. Um, it's just it, and it talks about like it talks about basically hacking in the eighties, right? And what they all had to do. 
But it's always been there. The difference is that it's now actually started to impact people in a real way, right? So when I was at BlackBerry in the mid 2000s, you know, our motto was always like, our customers don't care about security until they know it's not there. They are making an assumption that it is there. They're not, they're not even, they're not even like consciously thinking that. So we have to think about it for them. Yep. Because, you know, as soon as it's not there, they're going to know. And, you know, that's when they realize they need it. Right. What's changed in the last five years um, since basically since WannaCry hit, that was about the tipping point, I would say, is WannaCry and not Petya, um, is that it's become a mainstream topic where people have realized it could actually happen to them. Right. Um, and. And now what we're seeing in the last year or so is that it is actually happening to them, right? Um, and and the, the, the incidence of ransomware last year was far greater than, than many years before it combined. Um, and the other interesting piece to me and what's interesting about this current conflict is that the cyber war is going right on beside the physical war. And this is the first time we're seeing that. What people don't maybe realize is that the cyber war has been going on for 10 years. Yep. At least since even longer, at least since 2007. I think I believe it was 2007 when when the um when the US NSA tools were leaked um and uh the Operation Olympic Games became became public. Um, and it's been escalating ever since. Um, and so now what we're actually seeing is that the, 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 the cyber war has been happening already um, a lot. There's a lot of great books about it. It's, it's pretty interesting. But now it's happening at the same time as a, yeah. as a, as a conflict. And it's part of the conflict. Yeah. Um, and like to me, that's not surprising from a Russian side. What I did not anticipate at all in this case was something like like anonymous coming and then also fighting right so now you're getting now it's getting crazy right yeah it's like um, a, it's almost like a crowdsourced war is kind of the way i'm yeah. thinking about it because you even see ukraine making calls for uh like physical people to come support yeah. them and and different private enterprises and elon musk sent starlink up so they can yeah. get internet in like 10 so hours like a, yeah yeah it's like a brand new form of uh combat Digitally yep. and physically, it's it's crazy to watch this happen. Yeah. So so to answer your original question, it is not going away. It is never going away. Um, and cybersecurity is only going to become more and more and more important, which is, you know, what we those of us in the industry have been saying this for many, many years, right? Like there we've opened, we've we've what what is it? You've opened the 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 we've opened Pandora's box. There's no putting it back in, right? There's yeah, there's absolutely. no there's no people have realized what they can do by hacking things. There's no putting that back in. Um, so that's why it's so critical that we start opening up who joins as a cybersecurity um, analyst or or in in any of the roles. Right? We need to open up the diversity because we need far more people in these jobs than are currently available in the industry. And I think a lot of companies are going to have to get on the bandwagon like we have like we have done at Arctic Wolf and realize 
that you have to hire people early, maybe before they're even totally ready and train them. Um, because of the model of what our company does and, and providing the, the security operations for our customers, we had to start sourcing security engineers on a larger scale like five years ago. And very quickly, we realized if we didn't if we didn't start building some kind of program internally where we can hire people in early in their career or early in a career shift and train them up, we our business would suffer. We wouldn't be able to scale our business. We either wouldn't be able to afford all the people we would need to to hire and we would just not be able to get them, period. Yep. Right. And so I think one of the great successes that we've seen is the fact that we have taken that approach to pulling in people early, early in their career and growing them through the organization with strong training. Absolutely. And I think the cybersecurities that don't embrace that, cybersecurity companies that don't embrace that, they're going to get left behind. Yeah, I 100% agree. Diana, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Uh, no problem. I want to. There's a few resources you mentioned. I'm going to recap them. I'll put links to this stuff uh, in the description of this video. And if you're listening on podcasts in the description of that, uh, there's the book Accelerate, Cuckoo's Nest you mentioned. Uh, there's also the organization Code Like a Girl that, that I think you founded, in fact, and that, uh, yeah. you're a big part of that people should check out. Um, and then obviously connect with Dino on LinkedIn. That's right. And listen to her podcast. So thanks so much for being here and uh, I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. That was really fun. Hey, thank you for watching Tuesday Morning Grind podcast. If you like content just like this from cybersecurity executives, thought leaders, hackers, then come on over to risk360.com, check out our resource center where we have blog posts, white papers, videos, all for free that can teach you about cybersecurity. If you want to know more about cybersecurity certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, PCI, High Trust, and others, we have a ton of content on that. So whatever you're looking for, we have a lot of resources. Head on over to risk360.com, shoot us a note, and we look forward to keeping the conversation going.